2014, the year is young. Resolutions remain fresh. Expectations are high for a robust economy. Strong markets, political effectiveness, and stability at all levels. The 37th Annual Outlook provides helpful insights into what our economy, markets, and politics have in store. I think you'll agree that this year that just passed will be hard to beat in terms of excitement. Once again, the Canadian Club of Toronto is pleased to partner with the National Post to kick off the yearly outlook. We're also pleased to have Ernst Young and Scotiabank as sponsors. You may be familiar with the panelists, sometimes controversial and always thought-provoking, providing inspired commentary and insights into issues of national, financial, and political importance. What's the outlook for Canada's financial markets? Will our loonie continue its downward trend? How will the political landscape shift? Let's dig deeper with our panel. I'm pleased to introduce our moderator, Amanda Lang. She is host of the Lang O'Leary Exchange and is also senior business correspondent on CBC News. Joining Amanda will be National Post columnist Conrad Black, Terence Corcoran of the Financial Post and editor of its magazine, National columnist for Post Media and the National Post, Andrew Coyne, Diane Francis, editor-at-large for the Financial Post and the National Post, and Scotiabank Senior Vice President and Chief Economist, Warren Justin. Before I bring them to stage, I would like to encourage our live audience to take this opportunity to participate in the conversation by filling out the question cards available at your tables. A volunteer will then come by to collect them. Now I'm pleased to turn the stage over to our moderator, Amanda Lang. Thank you so much, Gord, and welcome to all of you. Many of you will have been here last year. Uh, if I were a good moderator, or had not been on holidays for the last two weeks, I would have reviewed last year's event and be able to tell you precisely the predictions that these people made and the extent to which they are now wrong. <laughs> However, I do remember one prediction. I think Terry Corcoran made it. And it was that Rob Ford would win his court case and be in office in the beginning of this year. That's right. So the question, of course, is whether Terry will make any predictions about Rob Ford this year. <laughs> uh, I can tell you that as somebody who speaks a lot, one often is nervous about uh, saying something that you wish you hadn't. For instance, I'm most frequently asked, this is the single most frequent question I'm asked, is Kevin O'Leary really that much of an asshole? <laughs> and there have been times when I hesitated to use that word. Thank you, Rob Ford. We will not, uh, however, make this license for our panelists to go off-piste entirely. We're going to keep it clean. Uh, I'm, I am delighted to be here. I want to thank, uh, of course, the Canadian Club of Toronto, the National Post, Scotiabank, and Ernst & Young for including me again. And as you heard, the program will be as it has been in the past. Each of the panelists will speak for five minutes, uh, and we're going to try to keep them to five minutes as politely as we can, Lord Black. And uh, after which we will take your questions. The questions come in the form of a card. And yes, that's because then I get to uh, vet them and throw away the ones I don't like. Just kidding. Uh, but we do want to hear from you. So you've got the question cards. Use them and we'll, uh, we'll incorporate you into the conversation as quickly as we can. That is the fun part. So we're going to begin uh, with Mr. Terrence Corcoran. Please join me on stage, Terry.
Thank you very much, Amanda. Of all the predictions I've ever made in my life, the only one people will ever remember is my Rob Ford prediction. But I'll take what you can get. Uh, but anyways, happy 2014 to everybody, and welcome to the annual running of the bulls and bears of economic and political forecasting. Now, uh, since this event is essentially about making predictions, I thought I'd spend most of my five minutes reviewing the state of economic forecasting around the world, and it is not good. The world's leading economic authorities now routinely warn their forecasting models are deeply flawed, sometimes even useless. Alan Greenspan, in his new book, The Map and the Territory, put it this way, Owing to the vagaries of human nature, forecasting will always be something of a coin toss. An academic economist I talked to last year, Jonathan Wright, at Johns Hopkins University, uh, was a lot harsher in his comments. Uh, he said, economics today is in about the same state as medicine was a hundred years ago. He said, it's moved beyond leaching, but not much. <laughs> now, before I get to what that means, and uh, to give our next panelist, Dr. Warren Justin, time to prepare his defense of his primitive medical practice, <laughs> I want to divert your attention <laughs> Sorry, Warren. Uh, your attention back to our contest for this year, the Dow Jones Industrial Average. And looking at that graph, which is uh, on your table, uh, boy, that's some run-up. Uh, and uh, climbed from 3,000 points in 1990 to 16,000 at the end of 2013, a gain of almost 400% in about 20 years. That graphic in the contest form, however, is a little bit misleading. It shows the increase in the Dow in points. What it does not show is a change in value in proportional terms over the same period. Now, what I'm about to show you is the same data, only in logarithmic form. Now, as Amanda says on the national, have a look at this. It's perhaps, it's, that's perhaps a more accurate historical view of the Dow than the one in the contest form. You will note that the big proportional increase in the Dow occurred during the 1990s. Since 2000, the Dow has been rather sluggish, even though it looks good on our chart. In fact, if we go back to 1980, which this chart does not go back that far, but my calculations show, suggest that almost 50% of the gains in the Dow Jones average over the last 35 years occurred in a five-year period between 1995 and 2000. Now, what does this mean in terms of the future? I have no idea, but it means it's, or maybe it means it's only a matter of time before stock prices start to get back on the track that they were on in the 1990s. It may also mean that the 1990s were an aberration and we will never see such market gains again. Now, the interesting bit here, though, to get back to my main theme, is that the stock market boom of the 1990s occurred during Alan Greenspan's tenure as chairman of the Fed, the same Alan Greenspan who now talks about economic forecasting being something of a coin toss. Or worse than a coin toss, leading up to the crash in 2008, Greenspan writes, macro modeling unequivocally failed. The best economic brains at the Fed the IMF, the Bank of Canada, the European Central Bank, around the world, operating the most expensive computer models on the planet, did not see the mountain range 
they were flying into. What messed the Fed up, says Greenspan, were the wild and unpredictable animal spirits that drove housing and financial markets into irrationality. These animal spirits pushed consumers and financial players into what Greenspan calls wild and even deranged mood swings that are uncoupled from any underlying rational basis. Now, that's all very convenient for Mr. Greenspan, whose loose monetary policies, along with other U.S. government programs, created the housing and stock market boom that preceded the 2008 financial crisis that they failed to see coming. Mr. Greenspan is essentially claiming, like a teenager who missed his homework assignment, that animal spirits ate my forecast. <laughs> there is no reason to believe the Fed or any other central bank has solved this forecasting problem. In a speech last Friday at the annual meeting of the American Economic Association, Ben Bernanke said, if the experience of the past few years teaches us anything, it is that we should be cautious in our forecasts. So, fine. Where does that leave us today? Making forecasts. Frankly, the outlook seems pretty good to me. Uh, growth in stock prices should continue to rise in the U.S., Canada, and Europe. Monetary policy will be relatively easy. Interest rates will stay sort of low. Ontario will get a new premier. The Senate scandal will fade as an issue. Obama will approve Keystone. The Harper government will lay the grounds for tax cuts. But Olivia Chow will be the next mayor of Toronto. Now, I may be wrong about this, but I'm not worried. <laughs> Animal spirits ate my forecast. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Terry. And as uh, Terry kindly pointed out, our professional forecaster, Warren Justin, is up next. Warren? And thank you, Amanda, for not telling your standard economist joke before I come up. <laughs> Um, actually, when I'm thinking about what Terry just said, if you went back and reviewed the tape for last year, you will find that I pr predicted what Terry was going to say because I spent three of my five minutes explaining why economists can't forecast anymore. And uh, part of the reasons, of course, is we're going into a world we've never seen. We're not in a cycle. The world is changing pretty fundamentally. Um, I don't have a degree, degree in astrology, so I can't predict whether uh, the president is going to approve the Keystone Pipeline or whether pipelines through BC and Alberta, or for that matter, to the East Coast are gonna go ahead. But that will matter very, very materially to our growth prospects over the next five years. It's very hard five years ago to find an economist that would have forecast what fracking and horizontal drilling would have done to the energy space, and would have correctly predicted that the US is now uh, increasing very, very substantially its energy supply, and that is a game changer for many, many industries. And when you put the demographics on top of that, uh, again, a fundamental change. Uh, trying to predict uh, becomes more difficult, and economists become more storytellers and fearless forecasters of where things are going. That said, I'm going to give you my forecast of where things are going over the next year or so. And we can always look at the challenges and the problems ahead, but uh, uh, over the next day or so, we'll be releasing our forecast for this month called The Economics of Hope 
And what it has in there are some uh, points that uh, I've made that suggest hopeful signs for 2014-15. Now let's keep the hope in perspective. We've been through a, uh, a real grinder since the financial crisis. And so improvement from a very, very uh, uh, poor base in terms of economic performance is, is not going to be a barn burner of a recovery. But nevertheless, I think there's some positive signs there. And the most important one is what's happening in the U.S., because after being on strike or hibernation, whichever way you want to look at it, the U.S. consumer is back in the game. The average age of cars in the U.S. is 11 and a half years. They're uh, dropping dead at the on the side of the interstates. And U.S. consumers are back in the game in, in uh, buying cars. The housing industry is improving. Neither industry is going to be into longer-term growth momentum. It's a cyclical recovery in the auto sector. And in the housing sector, we're not going back to the type of housing starts we saw uh, before the financial crisis. But over the next couple of years or so, that's going to provide a fair bit of momentum. And the U.S. deficit, despite all the fiscal problems in the U.S. and the gridlock that exists in that economy, you are finding that that, uh, that situation is improving. We had four years of trillion-dollar deficits and last year, the deficit was substantially below that, below $700 billion, and we expect further improvement. Cutting that two ways, you find less fiscal drag as we go forward, and uh, you find some leeway creeping into Congress, and we saw that in December, that they're going to slow down a little bit in terms of the, uh, uh, the aggressive uh, cutting back on, on some of the things that they did through uh, sequestration. You're also, I think, finding more of a likelihood that U.S. Congress will broker deals going forward. I mean, the respect for Congress or the confidence in Congress in the U.S. is below 10% right now. The latest survey I saw for November was around 9. And to put that into perspective, 8% of the population still believe that Elvis is alive. I mean, you get down to 9%, you are digging down to the basement in terms of respect. And I think as Congress nears the midterm elections, you're going to find that they will be uh, they will be moving a little more accommodatively to show the electorate that they can actually get their act together. Going into the emerging world, China did have a bad year. I mean, growth fell below 8%. It was terrible. But growth is also being fueled increasingly by domestic demand. China is the largest car market in the world. In terms of car sales, 60% of the increase in car sales over the last decade came from China alone. And production is increasing dramatically. In the NAFTA zone, we produce 18% of global cars. In China, 25% currently. So that mar market matters for commodities. It matters for the, uh, the auto sector. And Chinese tourists are the biggest spenders in the world. Two years ago, they spent $20 billion more than either the Americans or the Germans globally. So if that economy continues to grow by 7% or more, which we think it will, that is fundamentally good news. And to the extent that you're uh, really worried that there's uh, malls without stores or, or, how, or uh, cities without people, China currently has $3.7 trillion worth of foreign exchange reserve. That's the biggest band-aid in the world to protect themselves against untoward consequences. Europe is finally growing. Now they're limping out of recession, but that gives at least a little more impetus globally. And that will be important as we go forward, a huge market, and the one that we can participate in more if we're efficient and cost-efficient and, uh, and innovative uh, as the uh, Canada-European Free Trade Agreement uh, goes into place, assuming it's signed over. Now, what does all this mean for Canada in terms of uh, fearless forecasts here? Well, Canada is not going to grow as fast as the U.S. because the U.S. is in recovery mode. 
We expect the U.S. to grow upwards of 3% uh, in the current year. Canada will have a hard time getting to 2.5, largely because we're already at record levels of employment. The U.S. is not. We have a housing industry that has already added a lot of momentum. We were fast out of the blocks there. The U.S. is just getting going in many respects. But the momentum in the U.S. will carry, uh, carry along some of our key exports, and that will add fundamentally to growth in some provinces, including Ontario. In the financial markets, inflation is going nowhere fast, but we know that the Fed is cutting back on quantitative easing, another way of putting printing money, and that will drive longer-term interest rates up and Canadian rates will follow suit. So short-term interest rates will be held at uh, record lows by the Fed and near record lows by the Bank of Canada, but you can expect some uh, risk in the bond market, and that will put a bit of a break in, on, in terms of some activity, but not a lot. They will still remain generationally low. And the Canadian dollar, well, I can tell you with absolute confidence that I have no idea where it's going at the end of the week. But our fearless forecast for the end of the next couple of years is that it is more likely to go down than up because the U.S. is back in the game and investors realize that. Canada is doing well but is slowing down. We're still special but not as special as we have been in the past. And overall, we are going to find that the Canadian dollar will be impacted by that and by the fact that commodity prices are somewhat less buoyant than we have seen in the past. In terms of the challenges and opportunities, we see major opportunities in markets globally. But one of the key issues determining where we will be growing over the next three to five years will be what happens in the resource sector. And there is nothing more important to that fearless forecast than what happens in the energy space. Because right now, we will be depending less and less on the U.S. market as natural gas and oil production goes up. And unless we are able to tap emerging markets, we will find that we will get much, much uh, less innovation, sorry, much less momentum in that sector. And that sector accounts for 25% of Canadian exports and 25% of business investment alone. So am I optimistic about the outlook? Yes, there's a world of opportunity there. But in order to seize that opportunity, we have to be innovative, cost-efficient, and actually take action to reach those markets. Thank you. Thank you, Warren. And just a reminder to, uh, to jot down your questions. Staff will begin circulating uh, immediately to pick them up. So if you put your hand in the air, they'll come pick them up. Uh, and now please welcome Conrad Black to the stage. Thank you, Amanda. I can take five minutes to explain why it's impossible for me to say anything in five minutes. Um, I will adhere to my tradition, if it's possible, to refer to something that only happened once before uh, as a tradition of last year. And as you will see, as will shortly become obvious, uh, I am going to um, give you a sort of virtual uh, session here, so I haven't prepared anything, but I do want to comment on on um, something that Terence said. Uh, uh, in the first years of this millennium, I was on something of the same social circuit as Alan Greenspan, and I regret to tell you that Alan participated more fully than he acknowledges in the derangement that he now derides in his latest book. I remember at Carnegie Hall, I asked him in 2000 if it wasn't a 
worrisome thing that there was effectively no savings in the United States compared to 10% in Canada and about 20% in Japan. And he said, no, the people do much better investing in homes and they do much better in capital gains, whether they realize them or not, than they would from our deposit-taking institutions, which, of course, he was holding on the instructions of the White House to a return of approximately 1% on savings. And I said, well, yeah, that'll work for a while, Alan, but the housing market doesn't always go up. And he, he didn't say, it'll go up while I'm here, and the, the devil take everyone after that. He didn't say that, but that was the spirit of what he said. So I just want to say that a very superior man though he is, he is not completely immune to the contagion of derangement that uh, he now recognizes 10 years after the fact became a real problem. Um, I, I'm afraid I have to take a less optimistic perspective in the short term than the preceding speakers. Um, and in this I do follow on things that I said a year ago. It is true, of course, that the U.S. federal deficit is, has come down substantially and should come down some more. But uh, in 2009, after 233 years of American independence, including Alexander Hamilton redeeming the bonds that were deemed to be worthless that had been issued during the Revolutionary War in the previous, uh, in, in the time immediately preceding the setting up of the country, the United States accumulated federal debt of $10 trillion. And in, in the five years of this administration, it's increased to almost $18 trillion. And that, and I, I'm not someone who's squeamish about deficit financing, as is well known. I'm a great admirer of President Roosevelt, Franklin Roosevelt, and, and uh, President Reagan. And they engaged in deficit financing to different degrees and for different reasons, but very successfully, and you can do it. But you can't do it like that, and you can't do it where it isn't real debt, and a great deal of it is really just a disguised increase in the money supply. As you all know, approximately 40% of that increase isn't what the Bank of Canada or the corresponding authorities in other fiscally responsible countries do, where they have a shortfall of revenue to expenses and issue bonds at a rate that is attractive on an arm's-length basis to buyers. The unsubscribed portion of these sales are simply bought by the Federal Reserve, a 100% subsidiary of the U.S. Treasury, and they're bought at the artificially low rate dictated for interest rates, and, and they're paid for by notes that are issued for the occasion and just clicked across on emails. This isn't really debt, and there, you know, I, it pains me to be in the role of of, of crying wolf, and I'm not exactly crying wolf, because I think when the problem finally arrives in its full force, it can be dealt with. But we can't deal with it if we don't face it, and the United States isn't really facing it. I agree that it's a tremendous thing that they're returning towards energy self-sufficiency, but it is a terribly debt-ridden country. I agree that after 11 years, your average car does need to be replaced, and there's some good signs, but an increase in the money supply and in debt levels on that scale that buys you only the rather trivial increase in, in uh, economic activity and economic growth that we're getting is not a good deal. 
I just, uh, I, I'm very conscious of the time, so I just want to make a couple of points very quickly. If you read the works of Dr. Johnson and of Dickens 100 years later, there was no inflation of milk or a leg of lamb or accommodation of the same order cost the same 100 years later as it did in Johnson's time. Since the First World War, we have been on this inflation roller coaster, except that it isn't really a roller coaster. It's a descent at varying levels of steepness. And now we are not attaching currency value to anything except other currencies. They have no value other than in other currencies, and they are all being devalued together. And the inflation rate is higher than it appears because some industries that are calculated in it have been deflationary until recently, automobiles and housing among them, and, and, but some that are more essential, like milk and basic shopping basket things, have been quite inflationary. And the last point I would make is I don't think we're going to have a real solution until we reorient the economy. And if you just, I am, after all, a capitalist, as are, I'm sure, most of you, and if you just let the economy be the economy and, and, and smooth it as best you can from the public sector for those who, who are hard hit by these changes, we'll get there. But we became overly averse as a society to manufacturing and all of the great cities of the Western world have tall buildings in their core filled with highly qualified, hardworking, talented people, an inordinate number of whom do not contribute any value to anything. I don't want to pick on the legal profession or consultants or any of these people, but the fact is they don't really contribute value. And I mean added value. They're terribly good at what they do, many of them, but that's not the issue. And, and we are paying for that, and we're going to go on paying for it until we have a more balanced economy. And uh, I just offer you this thought, that if the president of Paraguay had the authority to decree and did decree that everybody in Paraguay would write a poem every day, doesn't matter how short it is or how lacking in <clears throat> literary merit it is, and sells it for $100, and this happens to each person 10 times a day, at the end of one year, Paraguay would have the fifth GDP in the world and by far the highest standard of living in the world, dividing the GDP by the population. And nobody would be one cent richer. And we should remember that. Thank you. Thank you for that uplifting review. Uh, I'm going to ask now Andrew Coyne to come and make, I know he wants to make many predictions about things, where the dollar's going, where the stock market's going. He loves predictions. Andrew? Uh, well, ladies and gentlemen, it's traditional at these occasions uh, for the outlook for the coming year for me to announce that I have no forecasts to make. Uh, I am, after all, as I've told you people before, I am not in the predictions business. I am in the back-pointing, back finger-pointing, and recriminations business. But I find uh, on this year's edition that someone has stolen my act. Uh, two of my fellow panelists have come up here and said that they themselves cannot make any forecasts and then have gone to make, on, make detailed forecasts after that. I urge you not to be fobbed off with these pale imitations except only the genuine article. My forecasting model is not, as Terry Corcoran said, deeply flawed and useless. It is entirely absent. But 
if I cannot make forecasts myself, I can dump on the forecasts of others. And it has become a commonplace, at least a speculation, among some of my journalistic colleagues to talk about whether Stephen Harper is going to leave us in the coming year. I don't mean leave the planet, but leave the job that he is now in. Uh, I am going to bravely forecast that he's not going anywhere. Uh, to do so, I think, would be against his nature. It would be a confession of failure or a confession of, of error, which he's not given to making. Uh, he shows no sign of it in terms of his preparations. Calling back Dimitri Soudas, for example, to be party director does not, to me, suggest that somebody who's preparing his exit. Uh, it's not clear the party would be better off without him in a kind of a cold-blooded analysis. People forget uh, how very recently the conservative coalition was put together. Uh, there are still fracture lines within that that any leadership race would expose. So much of the party right now is vested in his uh, personal leadership that it would be a, a wrenching adjustment for the party to have to go through at this point. And more than that, I think he thinks he can win. Uh, and if you look at... Uh, where the, the economy is likely to be, where the government is likely to be a year and a half, two years from now, whenever the election is called. I know it's supposed to be on October 19th, uh, 2015, but we've seen that those are not necessarily set in stone. But we could well see, without forecasting, we could well see as a possibility uh, unemployment down to near 6% by then. Uh, the Tories would very likely be able to report a balanced budget. Uh, they will have at least one major free trade agreement, possibly others in hand by then. They will have no doubt pursued their uh, quote-unquote consumer-first agenda, uh, whether you actually think that is a consumer-first agenda is a different matter, but they can certainly present it as such. They will be able to haul out the tax cuts that they promised last time around, notably to allow income splitting for couples with children, to double the amounts you can put in your tax-free savings accounts, and they will have a divided opposition with leaders who are either untested or unloved. But the story of the last year is not going to go away in the coming year. That is to say, the collection of scandals and mini-scandals that have accumulated around this government. The RCMP investigations into the Senate business are going to continue. We may well see charges between now and election time of at least one person. Uh, we may see some senators who didn't tell the truth to the police the first time uh, finding themselves in some hot water. There's going to be investigations by ethics commissioners, by bar associations. There will, of course, be questions in the House we will have the Auditor General's report coming in three tranches into the expenses of the various senators, all of whom, of course, sat in judgment of the three that they expelled for abusing their expenses. It will be a pretty state of affairs if we find that a great many of them were guilty of the same sins. So the Prime Minister, who has already looked diminished by the day over the last year, I think is going to be in for more of the same treatment in the next year, largely because he either won't tell the story or the story he does tell, nobody really believes. So we are in a strange paradoxical situation right now with a party whose leader is both their greatest asset and their greatest liability, the party that is presiding over relatively good economic times and yet is in historically low levels of support. It's not terribly unusual, though it is somewhat unusual to have a governing party below 30% in the polls. It is extremely unusual for it to be that low, 26% in the most recent poll, in relatively good economic times. Now, the Conservatives, therefore, have to bet that the polls are essentially an illusion, that when it comes time two years from now to choose a government, people will make a very different choice than when they're just reporting to a pollster at midterm, and there's a lot of reasons why that might be true. Uh, 
there's no government, no majority government in the last 65 years has lost an election when unemployment was less than 7%. In fact, if, if, if you take out 1957, there's only been one time in the last 100 years that that's been the case. So it's not true, though some have theorized it, that when times are relatively good, people feel licensed to sort of shop around and, and change governments. They show very little evidence of that whatsoever. In fact, if we look at recent provincial elections in BC, in Alberta, in Manitoba, Ontario, uh, even in Quebec to some extent, people are extremely reluctant to throw out incumbents when the economy is relatively uh, strong. There have been cases, but uh, they're very rare. They're the 2006 minority government that lost, but that was a minority, not a majority. There have been majorities that have been reduced to minority governments, but for a majority government to be thrown out of power is extremely uh, difficult. So that's certainly going to be the conservative hope. The NDP must be hoping, I suppose, the same thing, because on the strength particularly of Mr. Mulcair's performance in Parliament, I think they expected they would be in a better position than they are right now, but uh, partly because of the strength of uh, Justin Trudeau's appeal and partly because of Mr. Mulcair's own difficulties in connecting with the public. It's one thing to perform well in Parliament, but to actually be able to register with the public has so far eluded him. I think this is the other story that's going to continue, uh, though we might not have predicted in the past, is the continuing appeal of what you might call either dynastic or indeed monarchical politics. That the appeal of Justin Trudeau is something we haven't seen before of this kind. And it's hard sometimes to wrap your mind around because you can look at his resume as being very thin, and you can see that he hasn't taken very many strong positions on the issues. Uh, but nevertheless, he has this extraordinary popular appeal that I think is rooted primarily in the dynastic principle. We've seen this in other countries. We haven't seen it to this extent at the federal level in Canada, where you know, this kind of thing where the guy's grown up rather like Prince William in our midst. Uh, and if we discount the irrational part of politics uh, at our peril. It is, must be difficult for a Mulcair to swallow, who is clearly more substantive, clearly more experienced, clearly has outclassed him in Parliament. But if you looked at those last by-elections, uh, not only did the Conservatives register historic lows in the polls, they, their worst result in Toronto Centre since Confederation, but more tellingly for the NDP, when people were looking to maybe you know, cast their vote for another party in those two Manitoba ridings, they, went, they rushed right past the NDP to the Liberals with extraordinary increase in support. So I think this is going to be the big test over the next year and a half or so is, what is the trumps in people's uh, election choices? Does the economy, is it the be-all and the end-all? Uh, because we will probably have a strong economy then. Or do other things, whether popular appeal of other leaders or the scandals that have associated with the current leader, uh, do those uh, trump? And as usual, I have no forecast on that. And now I'd like to invite our final panelist, Diane Francis, to the stage. Diane? Do I have five minutes? You have five only. Five only. <laughs> okay. Uh, forecast is something I like doing. Um, and I know that forecasters are notoriously wrong, but... I'm going to rely on uh, what the major institutions, particularly the IMF, did uh, in terms of, and it's wishful thinking that the United States economy could grow as much as 3.5% next year and the same amount the following year. That's great news for Canada. Uh, China's uh, prediction is something like 7%. And it's interesting to note that in absolute dollars, that's about the same exact growth for each country. 
and they are the generators of economic growth worldwide. A roughly 500 billion, that's about a third of the size of the Canadian economy, China is going to grow by, and the United States. Canada will lag somewhat, but I think we're not in terrible shape. But one thing that is a, is a real drag uh, is the debts. And um, the consumer debt in Canada is at the same level as the American debt was before the meltdown. So we've actually switched places with the Americans. They have very low consumer debt, which means they'll spend more. And we have very high consumer debt, partly because of the housing bubble. That will, will mean we'll, the spending will lag domestic-driven uh, uh, economic growth in Canada somewhat. The debts are serious, and it's very interesting. I talked last year about the disparity between eastern and western Canada. The division is the Saskatchewan-Manitoba border. It's very interesting to look at the poor governance to the east of that border and the good governance to the west of that border. To the west of that border, and including our federal government, AAA credit rating, and then from eastern, eastward, it goes down, down to Prince Edward Island levels, which is A minus. Uh, it's just, it's a deteriorating situation, and I've written a lot about it, but Ontario is now the largest, has the largest debt of any subnational, national government in the world. Uh, it, it's gone from 2003 from 140 billion to 260 billion, and it's not slowing, and it's going to get very, very high in the 300s in another couple of years. Uh, Warren talked about the energy thing. That's good news for Canada, has been, but there's some real fractures starting to develop, um, which will, will hurt Canada's uh, situation in terms of economic growth and prospects, short, medium, and long term. My forecast in Canada is the dollar will go down to 90 cents, or if not lower. Uh, Goldman Sachs is shorting it. Say no more. Uh, there are some people that are saying 88 cents. This is actually good news. This is good news for our exports, good news for tourism and other things. Uh, we will continue to have big institutions put pressure on us to raise our interest rates because of our debts, government debts, and our consumer debt. Uh, but I think we'll be able to resist that. But nonetheless, the pressure is there. The IMF and the OECD have both said Canada has to raise interest rates because of the bubble in the housing and other reasons. Um, oil prices are supposed to go down by 20%. That's very bad news for Canada. As Warren pointed out, oil is probably 15% of our export income, and to take a 20% haircut is not good, good news at all. The wicket, the window for natural gas sales in the United States is closing very rapidly for Canada. That's very, that's very bad news. We used to supply 20% of their natural gas needs. Now it's half and it's headed down to zero in about three years. We have to replace that with LNG, and that's another mega project problem, and that's a big development issue and challenge going forward. Stranded resources are going to be a challenge in the medium term. The Keystone, Northern Gateway, and the East-West pipelines in Canada have to be finished, and I don't see them happening for a long time, if ever. I don't think Keystone will be approved, certainly not this year in another midterm election situation, and maybe not ever. Um, housing starts are down a bit. Prices are going to be soft. Our car exports is something we should all worry about. Again, the dollar going down will help, but we are estimated to go from 10% of light vehicle unit exports production in the United States and Canada from 16% from down to 10% in the next three years. That's not good. 
financial markets, I'm, I, I don't know how to forecast that. Uh, resources are a drag, but banks will probably do very well given the U.S. growth and, and so on and so forth. Um, and then elsewhere, very quickly in terms of, of my forecast, the Scottish referendum in the fall, I think, will be barely defeated, but I think that's going to cause problems in Canada in terms of the aspirations of the separatists in Quebec. The U.S. midterms will have the same result. Many Tea Party people, huge war chest, but the Americans will continue to muddle through, as will the European Union. The Arab world is, of course, a mess. China is stable, very important for Canada and commodity prices. Uh, the Sochi uh, Olympics will be a disappointment for Mr. Putin. I'm not going, that's for sure. It looks dangerous to me. Uh, and maybe we'll get a gold medal this year. A lot of the people are saying no, but that would be very, very nice. And then back home uh, to f finish off, Rob Ford, I think, is 50 pounds and one PR consultant away from becoming mayor again. Um, and I think I think Stephen Harper is, is fine. Uh, I think he's... I like him. I think he's been a good prime minister. I don't think anybody's landed a glove on him yet. Maybe they will. And I see the opposition, the four opposition leaders, three from Quebec and one from BC who wants to turn Canada into a park. I don't think he has a lot of problems in that regard. So on that note, I think we can be safely happy that Canada is going to be just fine. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, thank you so much, Diane. The first part of my economist joke, which some of you will have heard before, is from George Bernard Shaw, who said he thinks you could lay them all end to end and still never get to a conclusion. We have some disagreement it's here. Fewer and fewer laughs as time goes on. I know. You've all heard it, right? It's the next part that he likes, which is, I say, I've met enough economists to suspect they're happy to get laid at all. <laughs> but the point is... Uh, one of the first questions we got was, uh, in lieu of economic forecasting, what are the options? Which I like. <laughs> We'd have to rename the panel, first of all. Uh, but it's a good question, and I want to uh, ask you, Warren and, and Conrad, and maybe Terry and Diane and Andrew, uh, one of the disagreement points here is on the effect the U.S. economy will have on Canada. We know it's large. We know it's outsized. Uh, we either believe it's going to be a positive effect or a negative effect, and there's real disagreement here, which I find unsettling. Warren, you're much more optimistic than Conrad, so I want to start with the two of you. Uh, defend that in the light of the sort of fiscal problems that he's outlined. Uh, defend the idea that the U.S. will be a, a positive factor for our economy. You. Okay, I guess it's me. Um, I'm, as I mentioned at the beginning, I think cyclically we benefit from uh, the fact that Americans haven't been spending a lot. I think it shows up primarily in the auto sector near term wood products industry as well. There's a danger that in both sectors we tend to focus again on the U.S. market and forget the fact that we have to diversify. Unless we diversify, we have substantial problems in both sectors. And in fact, the wood product sector has diversified into the Asian market and done, and done quite well. Uh, the debt issue in the U.S. continues to grow. Um, it's growing at a, a less rapid rate, but I agree with Conrad that the whole issue of printing money, which we call quantitative easing, is a ticking time bomb for the second half of this decade. And unwinding that issue is going to be a very complex one. In Canada, the issue of debt is also very high. We look at the debt side of the balance sheet. The asset side is very solid. 
Uh, we continue to have year-over-year increases in housing prices, but the one thing we tend to focus on, and international investors focus on more than anything else, is the risks in the housing market, particularly in the Toronto market and in the Vancouver market. We are reasonably optimistic that the adjustment is going to be small. If the adjustment is bigger, then the whole issue of household balance sheets becomes bigger. But inevitably, the household balance sheet is not going to improve a lot because employment growth is already a record. Income gains are probably going up but not going to grow rapidly. So as a result, I think the fact that we put on a lot of debt tends to be a constraint on overall growth in this economy going forward over the next three to five years. You just talked yourself into a more negative point of view. <laughs> are you going to have to rename the Economics of Hope report Oh, I'm very out? hopeful about okay. the outlook in general. Conrad, one of the points that you're raising is that there is this massive historic unwinding that, we, that the U.S. faces and that therefore you know, the repercussions of which we also face. What does it look like? What's the worst case scenario? Well, I am of the school that believes that economics is half psychology and half grade three arithmetic, and I don't think we have either correct in the United States right now, uh, because the grade three arithmetic, of course, is being is being violated rather flagrantly by by these profligate uh, uh, performances by almost every agency of every government. And, uh, and there, the psychology isn't right because as a society it isn't facing up to it. I think it is like, and I now go back to my brief and extremely uneventful time as a candidate psychoanalyst when I was thrashing about at university trying to decide what to do for a career. And um, despite all the vicissitudes of the subsequent years, I am convinced that I made the right decision and that not to do it. But the thing that I remember that's relevant to this is that if a neurotic problem is identified, the very identification of it, the admission of it, and the acceptance of the proportions of it is virtually the solution. And what the United States is not doing, in my opinion, is seriously saying, here are the proportions of this problem, and this is a plan of action to deal with it, and we ask for the support, and then you have the formula that all of the prominent presidents from Roosevelt to recently have, have employed of asking for the support of the silent majority and so forth. And that hasn't happened. But, but I, and I, I don't see any likelihood it's going to happen with the present administration, but it is going to happen. Now, in the meantime, it's not for me to say when, whatever Warren, your expression was, the uh, time bomb blows up or whatever you said, um, and exactly how it would do that. But that was what I was trying to say earlier is the danger. Uh, on the other hand, the more positive side, if you, uh, I've just finished a history of Canada that will be published later this year, and, and I went at great, not excessive, I think, length, but appropriate length into the fluctuations of the uh, intimacy between the Canadian and American economies. And uh, as we all know, when free trade was put into place under the Mulroney government, the, the, the proportion of the Canadian GDP that was taken up with trade with the United States moved up nearly 50%, and it is now slipping back down. And um, and and we are, with uh, China and India, representing nearly 40% of the people of the world, and those countries now enthused about economic growth, which they were not for decades, uh, were as a general and varied resource supplier uh, selling more and more to them. So I think the trends are good, but in the short term, I think the United States, for the reasons stated, could be somewhat of a drag to us 
but nothing we can't survive. And, and, and I do want to say this. The Americans will work it out. It is a great country. It is a rich country. It has by far the most productive workforce in the world. 95% of Americans are patriotic people who love their countries. Give them a bit of leadership, and, and it'll, it'll start to work out. But I just don't see it yet. Terry? Uh, well, I just want to go back to the question, which was... In, the, in lieu of economic <laughs> forecasting, what are the options? What are the options? Uh, well, th there aren't really options, and I'm not sure that we need options. The, you know, there's a whole mystique, which, uh, with all due respect to Dr. Uh, uh, Justin here, there's a whole mystique and that's built around economic models and the measurement of the economy and the GDP can be measured and the reason for introducing these kinds of models in the first place and the whole view of the economy as, as a big machine that's measurable uh, goes back to the idea that the economy can ultimately be controlled in some way by pushing and pulling and manipulating uh, 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 the different policies around to move this part of it up to move the other part down, uh, which I think is mostly uh, uh, an economic fallacy. And uh, it, what we have is as good as we're going to get, and it's fun to watch now and then, but it's certainly uh, uh, not something you could pin uh, your future on determining whether the growth rate should be 2.7% or 3.2%, which are decimal points uh, that are uh, insignificant. Uh, so there is no alternative, and it's, uh, it's, it is what it is, and we have to live with it, but we should not <coughs> depend on it. Well, on this, this front of uh, what governments can do uh, or should not do, uh, the question is, with the federal government projecting a surplus, what advice would you give Finance Minister Flaherty on how best to approach the surplus? Andrew, I'm going to throw this out to you because I suspect that there will be some pre-election spending of that surplus. Uh, Diane, you may want to take a crack at it as well. Yeah. Lower taxes. <laughs> uh, Lower taxes. Andrew? <laughs> <laughs> well, he's going to lower taxes. We know that, so I'm not sure that the advice is necessary. Uh, it's hard to make advice because it involves sort of recasting their whole approach to these things. They, they shouldn't have lowered the GST by two points. They should have used it to lower uh, marginal personal income tax rates, but that, they felt, wasn't as politically saleable as what they did, so they did what they do. And it, it's kind of pointless to say to them, behave differently than you've done throughout your term in office. Um, so, yes, they are going to cut taxes. And it's, of, of all the things they could, it's, it's actually quite defensible. Income splitting is a quite defensible one, uh, both in terms of equity and efficiency. It's not the ideal one from the efficient standpoint, but it's not bad. Um, and certainly doubling the tax-free savings accounts is an extremely good uh, um, advance. Um, we've seen the limitations of the RRSP model, as beneficial as that's been for Canada. For certain types of people, it's not helpful to them in their retirement because of their relative tax rates. The TFSA meets that objection. It's sort of the inverse of the RSP in terms of its incentives that way. Um, and doubling it is going to make uh, room for an enormous increase in tax-sheltered savings, which from the standpoint of growing the economy in terms of the, the, the savings we're going to need, the investment we're going to need to get the productivity growth we need to pay yours and my health care when we're old, uh, it's critically important. So I, I support both the things they're actually going to do. 
All right, we've only got a couple minutes left, so I'm going to ask uh, for very short answers. But a uh, question has been asked about pipelines. It was, it's an issue that has been raised here. It's obviously of utmost importance, uh, Warren, you would acknowledge. Uh, Diane, I want to ask you, you're not optimistic that Keystone gets done. Uh, that's, some would say, a fairly devastating prediction for Canada. Well, it is and it isn't because the alternatives are rail, and I know there's some concerns about that and there's some safety issues, and, and, the, and the environmentalists are swarming around that transportation uh, option. But, uh, you know, in another year or two, there'll be as much shipped by rail out of the oil sands from the get-go um, as there would be on the Keystone. And the other pipeline has gone ahead. Um, I, it's become a political football. It's out of our control now. Yeah. And I just don't think that we've done an effective lobbying job in Washington. And, Andrew, could we have done a better job? We, the government, have done a better job? Well, both in Washington and domestically. They misplayed the Northern Gateway issue horrendously. If you're dealing with something which has a tricky, ticklish environmental issues connected to it, the last thing you do is basically what they did was signal we're, we're much more interested in development than the environment. What they ought to have done is paraded their green credential, credentials, such as they are, uh, for as long as they could. They should have reassured people on that score first. So now they've got a very difficult fight on their hands. I still think it's the best option of all the different ones that are mooted out there. Um, and it would be preposterous if it were, if, if a project that was beneficial for the country at large, which it is, were to be stopped either by the ridiculous posturing of the British Columbia government on this or by people claiming, quote-unquote, social license, which essentially has become a synonym for mob rule. Uh, so they, they've got a difficult selling point in their hands in terms of public opinion in B.C. They'll be very conscious of that. But if they can persuade uh, the, the broad public in B.C. to go ahead with it, then I think they should be quite hard-headed in, in terms of pushing that through. Terry, you're optimistic about Keystone. Why? Well, only about Keystone because I, I think there may be uh, a time when Obama will feel it's, uh, it's uh, opportunistic for him to approve uh, Keystone. On the other hand, uh, the, the, the market for energy is changing rapidly, is becoming less and less uh, accommodating to relatively high-priced Canadian oil that's got to be shipped across, uh, across the continent one way or another, especially this East, the East Coast pipeline seems uh, particularly uh, uh, inappropriate to me in terms of what are you going to do with the oil when you get it to the East Coast if you get it there. Uh, so the, the Canada, I think Diane said earlier, there is some kind of a risk that Canada will end up with this landlocked uh, oil uh, that it can't get out uh, to markets because of shale, the, the exploration all over the world, the, the world is awash in gas, oil, uh, and the oil sands don't look as appealing as they did at one point when we thought we were heading for shortages. All right, I got two big questions and seconds for each of them, Warren. Uh, somebody's asking for an inflation forecast, including the possibility of deflation. Don't think inflation uh, is going to get above 2% over the next year, so I'd be much more worried after 2015, and I don't think deflation is here. A lot of talk about it, but basically the economy is revving up, and if that's the case, I don't think you'll find inflation cooling down. All right, and this may cause you to strain or sprain something, Conrad, but I, in seconds, uh, I want you to answer a big question, which is you talked about those office towers full of talented people who add nothing to the economy. Uh, most of the people in this room, I think, actually fall into that category. Uh, if the point is to reorient one's economy away from that, what does that look like? What's the solution to this? Um, I, I, I do object to implicitly being referred to as a, as a a person afflicted by logoria, which is an inability <laughs> to stop talking. I'm happy to stop. But, but you see how you're, you're just filling time before you're um, answering. 
but that's a tactic, you see. Um, look, I, I, didn't, I didn't mean it to be insulting, and I tried to sort of sugar the pill for our friends in the law, but we were at our table, our end of our table, talking about the fact that in the United States, which has half of the lawyers in the world, where, where any serious professional accreditation is required to become a lawyer, and, and, um, and 5% of the world's population, and the legal profession takes 10% of the GDP. Now, of course, we must have a society of laws. Uh, but the problem is that, as again we were discussing, there are 4,000 new laws and regulations with serious sanctions passed in the United States each year. And just keeping pace with this requires uh, uh, this tremendous uh, hyperinflated in, uh, growth in, in the business, even though, in fact, the legal profession is experiencing some contractions because of resistance, uh, natural resistance and social resistance to the extent that lawyers tax the country. But to answer your question, question. I, I think it's, as I said earlier, you just have to let the economy um, perform in, in its capitalist way. And uh, there is some talk, much more talk than visible action, in my opinion, of manufacturing returning uh, to the United States and to some extent to Canada. But, um, you know, we can, most of us remember when a balanced economy was one that included a big manufacturing section and Economies like Canada were hewers of wood and drawers of water. Well, of all the strategic absurdities the United States committed in the last 50 years, and there have been quite a number of them, um, surely the greatest one was outsourcing 60 million jobs while they admitted 20 million unskilled people illegally into the country when, when those people could have been put to work at a lower than the minimum wage making Westinghouse clocks or something that went to Mexico or the Far East. My point is you'll get manufacturing back if you just let the economy perform naturally. So I, I think uh, uh, the forces of history are on our side here if we don't get in the way of it. But it's not going to happen in a day. And the mistakes that were made were of such a scale and were so deep-seated in the habits, the fiscal habits of the country, that, that you can't undo it right away. But you've got to start with some leadership and a plan of action. We don't have either of those yet. Thank you. You're right. That was very pithy. <laughs> And that is the, uh, the end of... I'm so sorry, Conrad. I'm just teasing you. Uh, that is all the time we have for questions. Thank you for your questions. Thank all of our panelists. And join me in a, in a warm uh, show of gratitude for their time today. Thank you, Amanda. The annual outlook never fails to deliver insights and advice to kickstart the new year. Thanks to our panel for once again delivering in such an impactful way. And Amanda, thank you as always for skillfully navigating a riveting discussion. Somewhere between the economics of hope and our animal spirits, we look forward to Canada finding its own path to growth and continuing to be, in Warren's words, at least a little bit special. And Conrad, I, for my part, will look for a new job. <laughs> I hope everyone was taking notes and will join us again in 2015 to see just how accurate today's forecasts were and you can um, uh, replay each and every word by downloading our, uh, the podcast of today's event from our website. I'd like to once again thank our partner, Nas the National Post, for 37 great years. We look forward to many more. As well, thank you very much to our sponsors, Ernst & Young and Scotiabank, for making this event possible. Before I adjourn today's meeting, I'd like to point out that there are event survey cards at each of your tables. Please fill them out and leave them at the tables as we value your feedback to make each and every event better and better. 
This concludes our television programming, which will be broadcast on Rogers TV in the days to come. We're grateful to Rogers TV and 680 News for their continued promotion of Canadian club events. To learn more about the club or to purchase tickets to any of our events, please visit our website at canadianclub.org. Thank you so much for joining us, and we wish everyone a happy and prosperous new year. This meeting is now adjourned.